The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The views and opinions expressed in the program do not necessarily reflect those of WTVA or its sister station, WLOV. It is not a production of WTVA 9 News. I come from a very large family. Really? They're all pretty... I have four sisters and four brothers. I have three sisters and... Yeah. Would you like to see my sisters? Come along. I think I've saw them before. Didn't I meet, like, Pearl? I met Pearl one time. Is that your sister? Yeah, where'd you meet her? Here? Okay. Yeah. She was here um, about a month ago. I think she was getting fresh with me. Yes, she was. No. She kept rubbing my leg while I was sitting by her. Are she, you sure you met her? Yeah. When? She looks like you, kind of. She has short yeah. hair. And I was here. Previously on Cupid's Arrow. Everybody knew who she was, you know, because mm-hmm. my mom always rode around in like a Kia Sportage. The police found her car parked behind a church off of Highway 72. Well, some uh, people in uh, law enforcement were involved with my mom talking to her and everything else. Yeah, the last person to have contact was that uh, county county sheriff's deputy. She was cheating on the cop with this other guy. Somebody got jealous and wanted her for themselves and she probably wasn't going for it and they killed her. That's where her sister barged in on it and I guess the police and MBI had said that uh, because she did that, she tainted the witness because she was throwing out names. Now, for the record, the getting fresh comment you heard in the home video earlier was part of a running gag. Looks like Danny kind of. Did you not meet him this summer? He was here for three, no, he was yeah, here for I think weeks. I didn't meet him, but I was here when he was here. I think he was getting fresh with me. You can rest assured that Donna's sister Pearl was not making a play at that young family friend. In fact, Pearl Black does not seem to be the kind of person who is subtle about many things. And you will meet her on this episode. Hi, I'm Donna. From the WTVA Creative Content Studio in the All America City, this is Cupid's Arrow The Disappearance of Donna. Some calls to Canada. That's what it took for our producer, Maggie, to make contact with Donna Cupido's sister, Pearl. And it was most definitely worth the effort. As you will hear, Pearl was very open about her sibling relationship and the way the disappearance case unfolded. Like many others surrounding that case, Pearl says she believes her sister had been secretly seen to Shemingo County Sheriff's Deputy Stan Hester. got a phone call from him. We suspect they rendezvoused um, where her car was found behind the Apostolic Church and um, asked 
after that, there was no more phone calls to her cell that were answered and no more contact was made by her to anybody after that time. Can you tell me what the investigation was like? It wasn't immediately reported that she went missing, like she's not a child, so you don't file a missing persons report. Our family didn't know that she hadn't come home on that that day. It was a Wednesday evening, and she didn't come home at the end. She didn't pick up shop till after school, which she always did. And she didn't come home, and she didn't call, and she didn't answer her phone. And then the next day, Donna's husband, Brian, called my family because Donna always would phone my mom and dad once a week religiously. She phoned my mom and dad, and so he was curious whether she had called them, which she had not. And he started driving around town talking to people, um, looking for her vehicle, and really found out nothing. And, of course, our family at this point kind of went into panic mode. Um, trying to call her and trying to find out what was happening in their home because we knew things weren't good. Um, But we didn't really suspect the rest of this story at that time. It probably was uh, by the end of that weekend. So the last time she was home was on Wednesday. By Saturday or Sunday, we knew that something was wrong. Uh, We didn't know what. Uh, what the nature of that wrong would look like. We just knew that this was not something Donna would do. As she had done on happier occasions, Pearl packed a bag, crossed the border, and traveled all the way down to Mississippi. So my dad and myself went to Iuka for 10 days and um, talked to everybody that Donna knew. Just went around the town. It's a very small town, as you know. Where are you from, Maggie? Um, I grew up in Colorado, but I live in Shannon now. So you probably are acquainted with how small Iuka is. Everybody knows everybody. It's a very small town. It's a very quiet, sleepy town. Um, And everybody likes to know everybody's business, probably. Everybody had something they wanted to say about what they knew about Donna. So it was difficult to... Um, know who it was you could believe and who just wanted to be part of the story. But um, we knew the people that we needed to talk to. Um, I'll just preface this with saying that Brian, her husband, um, he's not the most talkative person at the best of times. And um, before we had gone to Mississippi, I had talked to my the local RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and asked them, I, I wanted some advice about what we should do when we got there. And because, right, you know, this is not something we're pros at when this happens to your family. We were very naive, and we were miles away. We really didn't have a good glimpse of what was happening in her life at the time. And Brian was very quiet. He didn't really give us a lot to go on, and neither did the children. They didn't really have anything to contribute. Everything was fine, according to them. There was no reason that Donna should just walk away from them. There were no obvious clues early on. Donna's sister and father did reach one conclusion quickly. But I know by the time... 24 hours had passed. I knew that she was dead. We knew that she was dead. We knew that it 
the story was so bad that there wasn't any possible way that she wasn't dead. I met, my dad and I, the first full day we were in Ayuka, we met with Sam Hester. He was the one that Donna was uh, in a relationship with for two years before she disappeared. And he agreed to meet with us and we met and he was very open and forthright about um, what he knew and what the status of the relationship was. And um, there was there was a lot of focus on Stan because, um, well, he was the boyfriend, right? <laughs> and the first people that you um, look at are the people that are closest to the person that has been murdered or disappeared, right? That's the logical place to start. And it wasn't logical for us to focus on Brian because we didn't feel that Anyway, we met with Stan, and then uh, I met with Donna's friend, Bethany, and Bethany was a, a friend for a number of years, and they were very close, and uh, Donna had a personality disorder that when she, she was a big giver, she gave 100%, but if you ticked her off, you were cut off, and you would never get back in her good graces, and that happened with Bethany, and that's why she didn't talk to me either anymore, like she cut you off 100%. So Bethany um, took me to the Wooden Nickel, which was a common meeting place for Donna and Stan or whoever she was seeing at the time. And we talked to the waitress there, and she she knew the vehicle that Donna came in, or she thought she knew the vehicle, and she thought she would be able to um, identify the person Donna was with from a picture. We didn't have one because it wasn't sort of a cell phone-friendly time at that time. Um, but she, she knew that it was somebody that Donna had been at the wooden nickel with many times. Um, it gave us hope in that we thought, well, at least we know who she was with then, right? Here's where Pearl's version of the story detours from that of Brian, the husband. But it was disregarded information because this waitress apparently had um, a reputation of um, exaggerating the truth. So the the investigators determined that her testimony would not be relevant, would not stand up in a court of law. So they had to throw it out. Okay. So that that even though it didn't take Stan off the table, it took that vehicle to prove that Stan was with her off the table. With that out of the way, Pearl and Brian are right back on the same page. What we do know is that on the morning that Donna disappeared, Stan went to the local Walmart and he purchased, um, you know what Polly is? Like the, the plastic wrap, and he bought duct tape. He bought Polly and he bought duct tape at 8 o'clock or 8.12 on that morning that she disappeared. There's a receipt of that uh, admissible evidence. Um, so that gave that gave us um, evidence, and that was that all happened sort of um, during the first few weeks that Donna disappeared. So the focus of the investigation revolved around Stan. So then Stan was brought in and um, given the polygraph, and he failed the first one, but he was under the influence of a. Zoloft or something. I'm not, I can't remember exactly. That drug, as you may recall from our first episode, was Xanax. So they had to disregard that and redo it. 
and then he passed the polygraph. It didn't it didn't disregard any of the information because the information remained true. Like the everything we found out it was facts. It was either facts because we could prove it with a receipt or whatever or with a um, proof of a cell phone record or proof of somebody seeing them or we we had proof. We just didn't have proof of who anybody who saw Donna that morning with Stan Hester. After he passed the polygraph the second time, did the police just stop investigating him? No, they didn't. They just... So now it's a circumstantial evidence case, right? By now, the MBI has admitted that it, it, the hope of Donna being alive is zero. Um, and that proving that she was murdered would be about finding a body. They know statistically if they haven't um, uh, got any evidence to find the killer, it's about finding the body. Mm-hmm. And because because we had no concrete evidence on the killer, now it was about hoping that a body would be found. But again, it's Mississippi. Again, in Mississippi, it's uh, swampland and uh, treed and dense and... So um, they did some searches of properties that they thought made sense to search, and they didn't come up with anything. And now we return to the third man. And uh, then a third person came into the picture, and his name was Sonny Robinson. He's a bachelor who lives in Iuka. Sonny was a single guy. He was adopted when he was very young by a lady who Donna was friends with, an old lady. And Donna was very wonderful at that. She loved the little old ladies and loved to take care of them. So this lady's name was Ms. Ev, and Ms. Ev uh, raised Sonny. And um, a couple of weeks before, about a month before Donna disappeared, Miss Ev ended up in the hospital, and she was old, I think maybe 92 at the time, and that's where Donna met Sonny uh, while they were both visiting Miss Ev, and that's how Donna and Sonny met, and that's how Donna, where Donna and Sonny um, started a relationship. So Donna's still seeing Stan, but now she's met Sonny, and so she doesn't see Stan anymore, And but she hasn't really officially broken it off with it, him from what we know, but she's going over to Sonny's house every night now, and um, and that continues for five weeks after they meet until her disappearance. So by the time she did, but Sonny hasn't, so Sonny is called in. He doesn't admit to them being in a relationship for a number of weeks, and then it becomes obvious that they know that he has been, so now he has to admit it. So now they don't trust him, so they bring him in for a polygraph, and he fails. Was he the one who got a lawyer after failing? He's the one who hired a lawyer. And it was probably at that point that the investigation really stopped. Because now, um, unless they can take Sonny off the table by having him re-polygraph, 
um, he's the number one suspect now simply because he's failed the poly. That's kind of how the system works. So now we've got three suspects on the table. We've got Brian, we've got Stan, and we've got Sonny. And the one who looks most obvious because he's failed the polygraph is Sonny. And so now we're at probably the year mark. It's it's taken a year to get to this point. So I think it really, without them ever saying anything, it, it became a cold case at about a year. By the end of August of that first year that Donna disappeared, Brian had managed to sell the house, uh, get a divorce, and move to Texas. Well, by the end of October, by the end of he moved by the end of August. By the end of October, which was a full year after Donna disappeared, he was able to secure a divorce and uh, move on with his life. So he wasn't around anymore to keep his eyes on things and have his ears open. Uh, Jason, of course, he stayed. And the girls moved with Brian. Maggie asked follow-up questions about Donna's alleged personality disorder. Sometime during the first year... Donna was profiled, so um, by two different by two different agencies. You you talk for hours. They ask you questions, and based on the answers that you give, uh, they can let you know if um, the person has any disorders or quirks or a personality trait that would lead them to be able to do something like walk away from their life. Because that's really what you want to determine is was she, just because we said she could never do it, were things so bad in her life that she had no other choice but to walk away from it, right? And so you have to get your rose-colored glasses off and say, okay, you know, we're not finding anything this way, so you turn over every stone. And so at the end of the day, um, Donna did have a personality disorder, and there was no work going around that. It's just that we grew up in a in a time where, of course, we didn't talk about those kind of things. We just knew that there was something really odd about her behavior, and as long as she didn't want it, I could talk to her about it and ask if she was getting help. But as long as she didn't think she had a problem, she wasn't going to get any help for it. Anyway, her personality disorder was termed cognitive behavioral disorder cluster B. There were a series of events that happened in her younger life that put her on a path of being emotionally unstable at times. If everything in her life was um, in good order, you would not see any of the disorders displayed like a violent outburst, um, which is the way she acted out as far as the only way she acted out as far as we knew. If everything was happy and good, you didn't see that. But when things start getting complicated in your life, that's when the disorder shows up. And then there's a list of things that are possibilities of things that you will do because of that disorder. One of them is intense um, casual sexual encounters. Because we didn't know how to fit that in. There was there, you know, to know that she was having an affair was one thing to know that she had been having affairs for a long with various people changed it, right? 
I got to tell you, Maggie, my parents, she's the youngest of five girls, and she was the perfect daughter. The life that she showed you was perfect. She was the perfect wife. She was the perfect mother. She was the perfect housekeeper. She was the perfect host. She was the perfect friend, and that's how she was visualized. So to find out about things that she was doing that we had no idea about really burst a very big bubble in my parents' world for sure. They could not believe that their daughter would do those kind of things. And I'm sure that for Jason and Michelle and Jocelyn and Brian, that would have been difficult as well to know that this is what their mom was doing. Right? Like, can you imagine? And Jocelyn being just a young teenager who tagged along with her mom knew of much of it. So if, if Jocelyn's got a complicated life, there's no doubt that she's earned a very complicated life. I heard that Jocelyn was very close to her. Jocelyn was just a, had just become a teenager at the time that Donna had disappeared. And... Um, Jocelyn was a very expressive young lady, that's for sure. Uh, very much like her mom, very vocal and very demonstrative, and um, could her anger could be triggered very, very quickly, which was very much her mom's personality. Jocelyn Cupido, the child closest to Donna, is all grown up now and she will be given the time and form to respond to that characterization and provide new insight next time on Cupid's Arrow. Cupid's Arrow, The Disappearance of Donna. Executive producer and writer, Jason Lee Usser. Producer Maggie Bushwood, I'm Terry Smith, asking you to write a positive review for the show on iTunes. Until next time, stay safe.